Recovery Elevator, episode 433. I feel like sober people are everywhere. They're just hidden in plain sight. And I had no idea that they were so prevalent. Uh, like this? Yeah, that should work. Mix down. <laughs> yeah, keep going. Yo, yo. Mix down. Three, four. Yo, yo. Wiki, wiki. Three, Mix four. down. There we go. Seven, eight. Wiki wiki mix down. Guys in the house. <laughs> I love it. Wiki wiki mix down. There we go. Three, Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I'm so excited to be here with you today. On today's episode, we have Daniel. He's 43 years old from Orange County and took his last drink on December 31st, 2014. Great job, Daniel. I want to say thank you to all of our Cafe RE chat hosts. You guys do an incredible job. And listeners, today is going to be a good day. In fact, it's already been a good day. And before we get any further in this episode, let's hear from Exact Nature. We are thrilled to partner with Exact Nature because we are committed to the same goal, to help you quit drinking. Exact Nature's safe, all-natural CBD-based products can aid your alcohol-free journey. If you struggle with sleep, cravings, mood swings, and high stress levels, learn more about how Exact Nature can help you at exactnature.com. Recovery Elevator listeners will receive 20% off their orders by using the code RE20. That's RE20 at exactnature.com. Okay, let's get started. Humans are an anti-fragile system. What does that mean? Well, as the 17th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Another way to say that is that with every challenge, with every obstacle we overcome, we become more resilient, we learn more, and we are better equipped to handle life down the road. I'm currently reading a book called The Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter, which explains how living in a world of 24-7 comforts is doing us more harm than good. Link is in the show notes if you'd like to pick up this book. I'm really enjoying the read. I'll spare you the stats, but rates of mental health, addictions, inflammations, cancers are skyrocketing across the globe, and the author of the book says the reason for this is because we are living progressively sheltered, sterile, temperature-controlled, overfed, under-challenged, safety-netted lives. Let's tie this into quitting drinking. The discomforts of quitting drinking will make you stronger down the road, and not far down the road either. Cool thing, the author of this book, Michael Easter, is also sober, and he covers how we embrace the suck when he ditched the booze. The key message of the book, modern life is comfortable, but it's not making us happy. Addiction guru Dr. Gabra Mate sings a similar song in his latest book, The Myth of Normal, which I absolutely loved. Although humans are hardwired to seek comfort, it's not necessarily good for us. Many anthropologists agree that we were actually happier several thousand years ago. Our needs were simpler and easier to satisfy. We were naturally mindful, living in the moment. In addition, our ancestors usually found themselves in tight communities of around 150 people where everyone shared the burden of survival. There was a deeper sense of belonging. In the book, the author provides several ways to combat the comfort crisis, and one in particular for the remainder of this episode I want to cover. The Japanese coined the term Shinrin-yoku, which means forest bathing. In the early 1980s, as Japan was becoming more urban and tech-focused, the country's forest agency created a nature-based wellness program. The Japanese government told its citizens to improve their health by forest bathing. 
They even created parks across the country to do so. Japanese scientists then started to probe whether the tax-funded program had any positive impact. They've since published a flood of studies on Shinrin-yoku, or forest bathing, and pushed biophilia from hypothesis to hard science. One of these Japanese studies found that people who spend about 15 minutes sitting in and then walking through nature experienced all kinds of drops in the measurements that doctors care about. Blood pressure readings, heart rates, and stress hormone levels all went down. In another study, people with the highest levels of stress felt a significant drop in anxiety, depression, and hostility after only two hours in the woods. The Japanese scientists are so confident in the power of forest bathing that they have bravely led out into the forest groups of people with bad hearts, bad kidneys, or immune systems. The people shuffled about and sat around, and just generally bathed in the forest. Each group showed improvements. The people with heart disease saw their blood pressure levels drop to those of a person a doctor might pass as healthy. Diabetics had blood sugar levels get close to a normal figure. The people with weak immune systems started pumping out 150% more natural killer cells. These are the cells that naturally kill off the infections that are trying to kill you. The Japanese have since done more than 100 studies on Shinrin-yoku, or forest bathing, and their nearly always positive findings have incited a global research trend. A way to compound the effects of forest bathing, or to put it on turbo drive, uh, based off what we know about addiction and recovery, we've heard the opposite of addiction is connection, is to get your connect on in nature. Yes, ideally, this is with a sober group of people. With Recovery Elevator, we've done several independent meetups, um, camping trips with Cafe RE. A lot of our events take place in nature, and there's no coincidence with that. And getting into nature with a dog or someone else's dog is going to compound this. Let's take this force bathing concept a little further. Imagine getting into nature with your dog, a sober group of people, perhaps for an overnight camping trip, and you bring a ukulele or a drum or a musical instrument and whatnot. That will without a doubt take Shinrin-yoku or forest bathing to the next level. Listeners, for roughly 100,000 human generations, we lived in nature. Our feet touched the earth. We were more connected with nature because after all, we are nature. Now, the takeaways from this intro are get uncomfortable. It's good for you. In fact, all of your goals are located outside of your comfort zone. I remember in episode 000 or episode 001, I had listeners do an exercise, and that is put a dot on a piece of paper, draw a circle around that dot, and then place another dot outside that circle. Now, the dot outside the circle represents your goals. And for those listening to this podcast, I guess for most of us, that goal is sobriety. And sobriety is not located in your comfort zone. It requires you to get uncomfortable, to feel the feels. Those are both physical and mental and push past and do something that you didn't think you can do. But there's so much science showing that you voluntarily going after this discomfort or quitting drinking is very good for you. So listeners, it's time to get uncomfortable. It's also time to get outside in nature. It will make you happier. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this intro today. I had a good time putting it together. And I enjoyed reading the science behind forest bathing. I can only speak for myself, but my body, every time I'm out in nature, sends me a signal that says, yes, we feel good. Thank you for taking us a walk in nature. And now let's hear from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Daniel. As some of you may know, I'm a mom of two. And now that my kids are getting older, 
it's getting a little bit hard to find the day-to-day -day balance since everyone has different schedules, different activities. It's a lot. And in all honesty, it feels very overwhelming to me. It's like playing real-life Tetris. And I know that even though I have a lot to juggle, keeping my weekly therapy session set in stone and as a non-negotiable really allows me to keep my mental health in check. The tools I learn in therapy help me not only in my recovery journey, but also with the day-to-day -day stressors in life. My kids also deal with stress and passing on some coping skills to them is such a gift. We sometimes even take deep breaths together and it definitely helps us out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash elevator. Daniel, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you today? Yeah, Daniel, I'm doing great. Thank you. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for taking the time, sharing your story, your departure away from alcohol. Let's get into this, Daniel. When was your last drink? My last drink was New Year's Eve uh, of 2014. So 12, 31, 14. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Do you have memories of January 5th or January 1st, 2015? I do because I was hallucinating in a diner, Norm's Diner at breakfast with my wife and daughter and some family friends. And I had to go out to my car to gather myself and... At that point, I decided to listen to all of the signs that had been telling me to stop drinking for the previous, I don't know, four years, the noise was increasingly loud to stop. So when I went to bed on New Year's Eve, I had no intention to quit, right? But on New Year's Day, the universe slapped me and I listened and I haven't had a drink since. Wow. Well, I can't wait to hear more about your story and to share that with listeners. But before we get into that, Daniel, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from. What you do for a living, your age, if you have a family, and most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Absolutely. Um, well, I live in Southern California in Orange County in Laguna Hills, I'm married uh, with three children. I own two companies, but my roots are in education. I've been an educator since I was 22. I'm 43 now. And I love to play tennis, actually. I love to work in my yard and I love to do Wim Hof breath work and try new things. Like I'm taking a boxing lesson after this. Anything that's a little uncomfortable, I like to do. Yeah. Tell me about tennis and this pickleball craze. Is it like, man, are you going to train, <laughs> trade in your racket for a tennis or for a pickleball racket or what's going on there? I've remained pretty indignant and pretty defiant. I uh, have played pickleball once and it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, but I am afraid it will ruin my tennis game because it's so different. And Tennis is like one of my all-time passions. I grew up in a very rural community and tennis was one of the only things to do, right? So I have a lot of, I don't know, romanticized memories with it, associations. And then to see a pickleball, I'm like, Ugh. but then once you play, you know, it, it's some, there's something for everyone and it's a lot of fun. So I don't know. Jury's I out. I saw a YouTube video from the tennis community about pickleball and it's like pickleball what? <laughs> We're out yeah, they get they get fired. They, they get totally do. Up. They yeah. get fired up, but uh I'm I'm here for it. I think it's fun. I think anything it's community. It brings people outside. It gets people 
like active and it's a truly a sport that anybody can do. So is tennis, but pickleball is like, you know, even more approachable. So for that, I applaud it. Yeah. I'm on board there too. Well, Daniel, let's do what we came here to do. Let's talk about your journey into alcohol addiction, and then let's save plenty of time for the departure process, how you did it. Okay. Um, so let's take it from the start. Maybe when you first started drinking, what was that experience like? And then maybe, maybe walk us to when there were some red flags, you noticed that alcohol was no longer serving you. Maybe you attempted to moderate, did those moderation attempts work <laughs> and let's do it. Yeah. Isn't moderation attempt. I feel like that's a rite of passage. It's cute, you know? Absolutely. But my first, my first drink, uh, I was 16. I had a 40 of PBR. <laughs> I remember Did you finish that it? first sip feeling. Oh yeah. It's like three and a half beers. And it was just, it had me at hello. It had me at hello. But I also remember thinking, how do people do this? You know, because I was drinking it before we went somewhere and I was drunk, buzzed for sure. And I was thinking, I don't understand how people are supposed to drink this and then go do things, right? And then the irony of that is years and years later thinking, I don't know how people do anything without a buzz. <laughs> the, the inversion of that thought process is not lost on me. I started using alcohol more socially, more aggressively, habitually in college. And just as a classic Chad and Brad, like, you know, fraternity yeah, just to fit in. And, and also it, it did a lot for my social anxiety. Growing up, I had horrible anxiety and depression, although I didn't call it by its name because I had never seen a clinician. I didn't know what it was, but what I did know is that when I drank, it made me feel relaxed. It made me feel like I could have a conversation. I knew what to do with my hands, you know, all of these things going from a really small town to a college environment. The red flags though were early and often, early and often, just like the not taking days off, not stopping or cutting back, regardless of horrible decisions or really dramatic events happening, just continuing on as if, you know, nothing had ever happened. Yeah. I love your line. You had me from hello. I think that was Jerry Maguire being dropped. That's here. right. Um, and we've, I've heard that similar. It went for many of us who struggle with alcohol. Maybe it's enhanced dopamine receptors. Who knows? Maybe it's genetic variation. I don't think that, but the commonality is, holy crap, me and you and alcohol, we're going to go big for a long time together. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. And, and I'm going to put you above everyone and everything, even if it's in a very secretive, shameful way, alcohol was my number one priority in terms of any decision-making for at least 15 years. For sure. Hands down. And yeah. you mentioned the red flags came early and they came often. Daniel, you're 43 now. Sounds like you got sober, I don't know, 34, 33, five-ish around there or Correct. six. <laughs> and 35, so, 35. Okay. Was there an attempt earlier, like in the college days of trying to quit drinking or these red flags just keep piling up until you did something, uh, you know, mid thirties? No, I don't. Yeah. I didn't have like your classic, uh, rock bottom moment, you know, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, no DUI, no arrest, nothing that would really force the issue. I would, I don't like the term, but I'm going to use the high functioning because I would hide behind my resume. Like, you know, I'm, I'm doing well in school and I have a job. I became a school teacher. And I would say when I left college, the college drinking didn't leave me if that makes sense. And so I started to understand and started to really notice that people that were my same age and stage 
had given up the college ways of drinking, had gone to like the weekend and having a drink, like a psychopath, like I'm going to have a drink after work. And I would be like finishing several bottles of wine or a case of beer or a fifth of vodka after work and then going to work the next day. Right. So I didn't really make any attempts to stop until what I call, I started to try to land the plane about four years before I quit drinking, which is when I found out that I was having a child with my wife, our first. So that's when I tried to start moderating. Gotcha. And I imagine there's going to be some fun moderation techniques. Uh, Let's hear it. Oh, the moderation. Um, Yeah. My favorite is I went to a therapist who his name was Dr. Phil, not the Dr. Phil, but this is always how I remember the story. And he told me to have three drinks a day, every day, rather than, you know, buying a, a big bottle by the little individual like airport bottles. So here I am buying like 90 <laughs> tiny airplane bottles um, from the little liquor store down the street from my house, putting them, organizing them nicely in the pantry and being like, okay, I can have three of these tonight until I had the first sip of one of them. And then it was on, it was like, you know, like I have a convenience store in my pantry and I'm just going to get hammered like I normally would. So that one sticks out as like the, <laughs> a clinician what, what recommended What did Dr. Phil fail. say when you came back to his office and he's like, how's that going, Daniel? Yeah. Dr. Phil and I didn't last very long um, because I felt that was pretty horrible advice, but also to his point, I think what he did was he proved a really good point, which is that I can't moderate. And I think that's what he was trying to show me. And I didn't like the receipt. I didn't like the evidence. So I ghosted him as I did often anybody who would, you know, you go validation seeking. So somebody plays a card and I walked right into the trap like, oh yeah, I'm going to do that. This sounds great. And then I completely fail. I want to blame it on him. And then I just ghosted him. So that was very responsible of me. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Dr. Phil knew he was doing the whole time. (laughs) I feel like he did. I feel like I got Jedi'd. Yeah. Dr. Phil has got the name already. Okay. (laughs) What happens after that? Then we go to, I'm not going to drink hard alcohol right? Um, I'm not going to drink hard alcohol because it has higher percentage. And so I'm going to buy only what I'm going to drink that day. That seemed to be the strategy, but that ended up being like two bottles of wine every single night. And I would go like, I would go to Trader Joe's and buy two buck Chuck, you know, like the $3 wine and why and tell the cashier I was having a party or something. And I was just so embarrassed because I'm like, no, this is just for me for like this work week. (laughs) I'm just going to get through this work week with this like $3 Chardonnay, you know, but again, trying to like, say, I only have this much, I only have this much. And then regardless, I would always go either go back out or I would fight through it and only have my allotted amount. But then I would be so pissed off the entire time thinking about like, I am, I deserve more. I should have more. This is my thing. This is my, I deserve it. You know, lots of entitlement around, around the drinking for sure. Sure. Now, Daniel, with these moderation techniques that aren't panning out the way you know, Dr. Phil wanted, or maybe, and, and the other ones, was there a narrative inside that's saying, oh, oh crap, um, this might be a bigger issue than we thought? Yes. And and I knew that. I mean, I, I from, the, from my mid-20s, I understood that I had a very unhealthy relationship with alcohol, that, that the tail was wagging the dog. But I got really defiant. I got defiant. Like I remember saying out loud and thinking, I would rather drink every day and have fun 
and do my thing and live a very short life than live to be a hundred and not drink. Right. Mm. Because I couldn't control the situation and I, and I felt out of control, but I was not willing to give it up. I was holding on to it so, so tightly that then at that point, I completely abandoned moderation and just um, adapted and went to like vodka and hiding it and sneaking it and drinking it and having my bottle in my freezer, but also like the burner bottle in the garage and like the stash and the secrecy of it because I, I could not moderate and I was not willing to give it up. Wow. Okay. What a crossroads, right? And so was this right around yeah. the birth of your first child or afterward? This is right before. So, you know, we learned that we're having a child and, and I'm thinking, um, cause I quit drinking when she was three. So she was three on that new year's day. And so I'm trying to, trying to moderate, trying to not moderate, you know, like this tug of war within my brain. And finally, then I was like, well, I only have a year left before she's born. So I might as well get it all in. Right. I got to just get it all in while I can promising myself as soon as she's born, I, I'll do better. As soon as she's born, I'll, you know, and you would love to think like, and it's so horrible to say, or sad for me to say, you think, okay, I'm going to have this child and it's going to change my relationship with alcohol. And the truth is, is that it didn't, it didn't, it changed the relationship because I had to get more strategic about it. And I was like resentful about that, but I didn't hold this baby who I love more than anything in my arms and be like, okay, uh, this is good. I can give up alcohol. now." And I thought, and I thought that that was going to do it. Right. I thought as soon as I have this child, it'll be enough. It was not enough. Well, Daniel, I've interviewed several fathers on this podcast. We're in episode, you know, four thirties right now. I've probably heard that narrative 15 to 20 times where a father would say, finally, I've got a child on the way. Everything will change. And, uh, and I've heard stories they've missed the labor, right? Because they've been in rehab or in hospital, right. they, they couldn't show up. So just want to let you know that that's normal. So take it from there, Daniel. So we, we have our, our first and I get a promotion. So I go, I was, I was a school teacher and I become the assistant principal at the same school where I was, um, teaching. I taught for eight years and I was a the principal there for four. So with that promotion is like at the same it's like all of these changes are happening at the same time. I'm leveling up professionally. I'm leveling up as a as a father. We buy a house, all these things, right? But alcohol still still has me. And the toll that it was taking more than anything was on my mental health. Because if you look at the sense of agency or identity I had as a as a husband or as a father or as a professional, all those things were check, 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 you know, good on paper, good on paper. But Deep inside me, I was having increasing anxiety, panic attacks, um, severe depression, which we know now alcohol, or I know now, you know, it's such a huge depressant and I was on medicine, but it wasn't working shocker because it was being nullified by the amount and the consistency of which I was drinking. So I began to really fear for my own mental health. And when I hallucinated, I think that was a definite sign because I wasn't hallucinating because I was detoxing. I was on a bender and I was hallucinating, which is a little bit different than some people maybe hallucinate because they're detoxing and they're not doing it correctly perhaps, but I wasn't even there yet. I wasn't even to the detox phase. I was still in active addiction, but something about that obviously really got my attention more than anything else had. 
Absolutely. And looking back when you were talking about your mental health was suffering, suffering on the outside, the boxes were checked, but internally with those mental health struggles, and I've been here too, I could not connect the dots and say, this was alcohol. It was like the geographical cure had to switch up medications. Oh, I need to go to grad Correct. school now. Oh, I need to do that. I couldn't see 100%. it. hundred percent. Were you able to see it or you couldn't as well? I was trying to outrun it. I was definitely okay. out try, trying to outperform it similar sure. to what you just stated. Like if I get my administrative career going, or if I just had more money, I wouldn't drink. Or if I, you know, if we bought a house, I would be happy and wouldn't drink. If we could have kids, I'd be happy and I wouldn't drink. So if I move from this medicine to that medicine and definitely doing everything in my power to, to not let the truth be known, but in my soul, I feel like I, I always knew, or for a long time, I knew alcohol was the variable but I was just trying to figure out any way to, to find a loophole to be able to keep it in my life. Now, was there an external factor like your wife saying, hey, it's time to quit, uh, colleagues from work or anything like that? My wife was definitely wanting me to quit for a long time. She was good about holding boundaries and holding me accountable. I, I was so horrified of anyone at work finding out. Um, I was very good at coloring inside the lines, meaning I didn't drink at work. I would just wait till I got home. I loved my job, but I was like living as two different people, high performer principal running this affluent school in, in Orange County. And then as soon as I head home, going back and just cracking open, just cannot wait to get home to have that first sip. Right. Sure. And then from then on, I would just drink until about 10, 10, 15. And I had what I call drunk math. Like I had a whole system, a whole routine down. I knew exactly how much I could drink when I needed to stop, how many Excedrin to take, Gatorade or Pedialyte, like the whole routine so that I could rinse and repeat and be back ready for the next day. Listeners, awful. you're just listening, but I can see Daniel on Zoom and my head's been shaking the entire time. And I know <laughs> listeners out there, when Daniel talked about the amount of Excedrin, the amount of time you can drink, the amount you can drink, we all have that figured out to, to yeah. we have like our optimal, you know, shitty performance, but we can still pull it off. Right. I was, Correct. I was internally smiling about that because we've all been there. And, and Daniel, I want to, I want to expand and dive in a little bit more on your sobriety date. The last drink, New Year's 2014 right. sobriety could be Jan 1, 2015. I'm interested right. to hear, I love the sobriety dates that are almost spontaneous or they weren't planned because you said you Correct. weren't planning on quitting drinking. Yes, the red flags were there, no. but also you doubled down like, I'm not losing this. I'm just going to drink the rest of my life. Here we go. But Correct. you know, what do you think it was the next day? Was it the hallucination? Uh, mm -hmm. What changed internally? You had no change, no plans of quitting drinking. I had no active plans. I had not set a quit date. I had not set a, a strategy. I was very much still in de active denial sure, and getting, getting away with it, you know, um, learning to hide it well enough to, to be able to still get away with it. But my mental health was getting worse. And I knew that, and it horrified me because I had, I have struggled with depression and anxiety my entire life. So I was worried about my brain. And when I was hallucinating, of course, it, I mean, it scared me. It just scared the, the shit, the shit out of me. And I could not go to the doctor. I had to go to urgent care because it was a holiday. And then I was able to get into my doctor, I don't know, like the next day or the day after that. And I finally just squared up with him, Dr. Justin. He's still my doctor now. And I just decided to lay it all on the table. 
and be like, I need, this is what I'm going through. This is why I'm drinking. I'm so anxious. I'm horrified if I stop drinking that I'm in a this, that, and the other thing. And he helped me develop a plan and activated that plan. But even then, I only promised to stop drinking for 30 days to see if the medicine would work. For I was sure. still negotiating. Yeah. I had no plans on quitting drinking. I was like, February 1st, I'm just going to get hammered in my mind. But I had it like, that's what I was thinking to myself so that I could make it through each day. And then as I got to February 1, I was too afraid. I was too afraid. So I decided, okay, February is not a real month anyways. It's real short. So I'm just going to try to tack on one more. And that's how I played the game for a very long time. Wow. Okay. And I do have a question about the hallucination. Was it audio, audio, or audible hallucinations? Was it visual? Yeah, it was an audio. It was an auditory and debatably visual. I was laying in my car, in the front seat of my car, and had the AC on, and there was a guy that was in an industrial van parked next to me, and he was in the passenger seat, and he was against the window, and he was either dead or asleep or not even there, and he disheveled, and I looked up, and I heard a voice, and the voice was like, that's you, like as as clear as... like. <laughs> Like Morgan Freeman's just sitting next to me like, that's you, you know? And I'm like, oh, and I look and no one's there. And, you know, I'm already completely anxious. And at that point, my number one objective was like, I need to get home and I need to drink. But I was so shook by that, that I rerouted after we got home. And I'm like, I need to go to urgent care. So that's what I did instead wow. of drinking, which I had alcohol at the house. Sure. Yeah. Could have been an auditory hallucination or it could have been a, a, a larger voice warning you. Who knows right there? Correct. Yeah. Correct. That's, that's incredible. Um, so you went to urgent care and then how did you do it for mm -hmm. the first week, two weeks? How did you make it to February? Oh God. I played Sim City. <laughs> great game. <laughs> On my iPad. Yeah. Great game. For those of you who don't know it, it's like Roblox for old people, but we were on winter break, so I had about a week um, before I had to go back to work, and it was very minute by minute. When I got home from the doctor, I had a vodka funeral, so I took all of the vodka I had, and I dumped it into the sink, and I was crying, and I was like trying to get like a last like contact high of it, you know, but I had to get it all out of the house, and I was just, and I'm a very stubborn person, and I'm like, I'm not drinking today. And I just had to do that every single day. But I regret, one thing I regret the most is that I was very isolative and very secretive about my sobriety. And I didn't seek community. I was so fearful of shame. I really just did it on my own. And that is the thing I regret the most about the first three to six months of my journey. Yeah. Sure. Well, okay. And then, you know, when did that change? When did you say, you know what, I'm done. I'm done doing this alone. Um, about six months. Um, at six months, I decided that I just had felt better than I had ever felt. And that's not saying that much because I still was struggling significantly with depression, but the clarity and the, the absence of that rebound anxiety or anxiety was so freeing that in itself, even though people say, well, it's so boring when you get sober. I found so much peace in just sitting and being and, and not doing anything because I was not, my heart wasn't racing 24 hours a day. Um, so I got more open about it, started 
meeting people at parties because I would still go out to our like with our friend group and to barbecues. And then there's always that one person that's not drinking. And so I would just go hang out with that person. And then I feel like sober people are everywhere. They're just hidden in plain sight. And I had no idea that they were so prevalent, <laughs> except for my Aunt Beth. My Aunt Beth was the only sober person in my life growing up. And I'd always look at her and be like, what the fuck? Why? How? Who? You know? And then here I am eight and a half years later being like, yep, I love it. I love going to a party and finding someone holding a water or a coffee and just going and holding space with them and just chatting. Not even about that, but just, it's like this unspoken truth that you both know. So yeah. Daniel, earlier you talked about anxiety and depression has been something you've struggled with your entire life. My question is just removing alcohol, right? How did that affect your anxiety and depression? I would say that just removing alcohol really had a, a positive impact on my anxiety from on a daily perspective. And actually pre-pandemic, there were, I was not on any sort of medication for like three years, which was incredible. And, and I think says a lot about, especially with me being someone that's very open and very, I wouldn't say reliant, but you know, it, it's part of my recovery plan is certainly psychiatry, therapy, all of those things, um, medication. So it temporarily removed sort of the peripheral surface level mental health issues, but it didn't make them go away. Yeah. And Daniel, that's my experience as well. It didn't make them go away, but it gave me right. at least a chance to deal with it where I had no chance before. And my anxiety went away probably 90% and especially the anxiety. That is the worst. Oh, yeah. a binge that morning when you're trying to sober up. Ooh, that's one of the worst oh. feelings in the world. But yeah, at least I had a chance to get the root to, to get to the root of it. And I had a chance to get in the car to drive to a therapist's office to drive Correct. to a meeting. Right. So yeah, I, I like, I like what you said there. And, you know, I want to take advantage that you've got eight, eight and some change years here. You know, what were yeah. some themes maybe like early recovery or the first half versus the second half? And maybe what are you working on right now at year eight? Yeah. Okay. This is not maybe the best news for people, but I would say that year two for me was harder than year one. And year one, I was very, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, excitement, you know, at least for me trying to get to that one year mark and, and counting my days and being really focused on it. And then as soon as I hit that year two, my drunk voice is like, well, now what are we just going to do this forever? If you keep doing this, you're going to ruin it for us. Like, what's the deal, you know? And, and in year two of Sobriety, I also uh, lost my best friend uh, by suicide. And so getting through the grieving process like that um, without having a drink was extremely challenging and very, a very tenuous um, several months, which ended up with me leaving my job, taking a mental health leave, choosing my own mental health and my sobriety over economic stability and, and even over comfort and the passion that I had for the job, I had to leave it. So, but here's the thing, the grief of giving up alcohol prepared me in a really weird way for losing people in real life because alcohol was my best friend. Alcohol was my ride or die. It was my coping skill. It was my number one and it had been. So learning to live without it and grieving it and going through all of the stages of grief prepared me for that loss. Um, not perfectly, and not completely, but it did. So thematically, I would say 
years two and three, I suffered a lot of personal loss. A lot of people around me passed away and it got really challenging. And I just remember thinking to myself, I would not be able to handle any of this if I was drinking. I wouldn't be able to do any of this because it would be so commingled with being hungover and so commingled with being anxious and shameful and regretful and angry that I was really happy that I wasn't drinking when I in such a sad time, if that makes sense. So then I went to, I guess the next phase of it has really just started recently in the last two years talking about my story and starting to share about it on TikTok of all places and having that resonate with a lot of people and being a very cathartic experience because I was quietly sober for six years. I didn't really say much about anything to anyone unless you really knew me, you know? Yeah. Now listeners, Daniel has a podcast called Sobriety Uncensored. That's where you can listen to to Daniel's podcast. I think it's, uh, what episode did you, did you say? 30 something? 31 came out okay, today. Okay. Yeah. 31. Well, congrats. I know what it takes to put in a podcast, the, the work, and also uh, putting your life story out in MP3 format to the world, right? Anybody can hear right. that. That's, that's challenging. And there was some synergy with this interview right now. I had a buddy, this was a couple months ago, but a buddy was visiting me while I was in Costa Rica. And I don't know what the topic was, but he's like, man, I just heard this great sobriety podcast called sobriety uncensored with this guy named Daniel. I think he said he used to be a high school principal or, or school principal. Yeah. Like, oh, cool. That, that, that's great. And the same day or the next day, I had an email in my inbox from Laura McCowan. I interviewed her. She's the, the push off from here, the lucky club. Great gal. And she connected me with, with a gentleman, Paul, meet Daniel, Daniel, meet Paul. Just found the synergy funny when my buddy mentioned that your name, it's in my inbox. I said, well, universe, let's do the interview. <laughs> yeah, I was it's going well. Very humbled. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This is great. And we had Laura on our podcast and Jenna uh, is my co-host and she's a nurse from Philadelphia who I met doing a TikTok live and she was hammered and she was talking a lot of shit uh, to me and then messaged me the next day to apologize. And she is almost two years sober and we have a podcast together. It's pretty funny. Love the story. <laughs> Again, that's sobriety uncensored. How do, how do people find you on TikTok? Uh, Patterson Perspective is my handle on TikTok and Instagram. Yeah. Gotcha. Cool. I got, I got one more question for you before we hit the rapid fire round. Uh, Daniel, for sure. Is uh, is there any twelve step work in 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 your recovery, or is it mostly the podcast, TikTok, and and your other there's there you know, other ways? You know, there's no right or wrong way to to recover. Right. But I'm curious if you went down the, the I, road of twelve steps. I have not completed the twelve steps. Um, that's the shortest answer. I have gone to AA. I went because my therapist really challenged me to go because I felt like I was better than or you know I'm I just my ego. I didn't want to go. Right. So I drove like 45 minutes out of town to not see anybody because I was a principal. And then I saw a dad that went to whose kid went to my school. <laughs> so I did go to AA for a long time, but I was reluctant to get a sponsor and I was reluctant to do the steps. But weekly therapy has been like a steadfast component of my life. So a lot of the tenants of that I've worked out, you know, on my own with with the guidance of a mental health professional. Um, but yeah, the podcast, I have a sober community that that I run. I have my sober crew of, of buddies that I hang out with almost exclusively and um, my Wim Hof breath work and exercise, essentially. Well, actually, one more question too, before we get to the rapid fire round. I want to ask you, because you've interviewed people 
what is the one commonality that you are seeing or have seen for people that have been successful in sobriety, they're doing fill in the blank. They are making it their main hobby or their full-time job, whatever that looks like. Um, and finding a sense of community, which is why I think a 12 step or refuge or anything, any sort of opportunity to connect with other people who are going through the same struggle as you, I feel is, is the strongest common denominator in a successful like recovery path. Yeah. Another way that's remixed in the rooms of 12 steps is you got to put at least the amount of effort that went into your drinking into your recovery, right? And the amount right. of effort and mental energies that went into your drinking is substantial. All right, Daniel, we have reached the rapid fire round. If we could answer these questions within 10 to 30 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, let's do this. What's the one thing you've learned about yourself since quitting drinking? I'm still stubborn. <laughs> All right, best sober moment. Ooh, best sober moment. Uh, vacation with my family to Sun River. Yeah. Okay. What's your favorite alcohol-free drink, Daniel? Uh, Spindrift Lime or Fever Tree Ginger Beer. Gotcha. Daniel, what's the point of life? Uh, to help other people and connect with other people. All right. Favorite 90s band? Um, Weezer. Oh, it's a good one. What are some of your favorite resources? Favorite resources for me, uh, the Calm app for meditation, um, the, the Wim Hof app um, for the breathwork classes, um, and TikTok, <laughs> actually. If you had a pet flamingo, Daniel, what would you name it? George. Solid. Pineapple on pizza, yes or no? God, no. Okay. Take a breath, Paul. Take a breath. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners, Daniel? I would be less concerned how people recover and more concerned that people recover. If we get, we look for a roadmap, we look for a recipe, we want people to tell us how to do it from point A to point Z, you know, start to finish, figure out a way that works for you. And the only way to figure out that way is by trial and error and by doing. Okay, Daniel, let's close it out with your own customized. You might need to ditch the booze if. You might need to ditch the booze if you are still drinking despite the negative consequences that it continues to bring and deliver to your life on a daily basis. For sure. You painted that one out quite clearly. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us on the Recovery Elevator podcast. Again, Daniel has a podcast called Sobriety Uncensored. Thank you very much. I'm so glad we connected. Thank you, Paul. I, I hope we keep, touch, keep in touch in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. In our cafe chats, we start off with an icebreaker. I was hosting a couple weeks ago. I don't remember exactly what I asked, but I think I asked when you're stressed, when you're triggered, what helps you? What do you like to do to feel better? Now, there were some people that said, you know, I just want to watch Netflix. I want to stay inside and read a book. I love those things also. But the overwhelming majority, the commonality was I want to get outside, get outside with my dog, go for a walk in the park, get out into nature. As we discussed earlier with Shinrin Yoku, that is the Japanese concept of forest bathing. So listeners, if you are feeling uneasy, perhaps right now while listening to this episode, I recommend you leverage technology. Get a nice pair of headphones or earbuds, take your cell phone with you, maybe download the episode and then put it on airplane mode and listen to this episode while cruising around in nature. While listening, keep your eyes open and see what you can see. 
Recovery Elevator, I love you guys. It all starts from the inside out. We can do this. Stopping you. 